Happy Saturday. It's April 30th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Here we are on the last Saturday of April, almost into May. I can start wearing my Birkenstocks again. It's finally warming up in New York. Gee, life is measured in small moments, right? Do I wear the bottom of my trousers rolled? There you go. Yeah, you know. Nothing says middle age like getting excited about wearing Birkenstocks, Michael. (laughs) What's next? I don't know. It's the small victories. It's the little things. Now you're just making me think like it's minor theme of the issue this week is sort of bodies and body changes and body enhancements and how what people are doing these days. I think now that spring is here as well as maybe the next evolution of COVID life has has come to us. When you talk about the change, Michael, what are you trying to say? Okay. I was just talking about like the change in our attitudes towards used to be for two years of not dressing up for work, working from home and see you're all excited about Birkenstocks rather than 120 millimeter stiletto. So people are changing how they look at their bodies after two years from what I've read in this week's airmail. I'm trying not to look at my body after two years of pandemic life, but others are. And we've got lots of intel on what exactly people are doing to look and feel their, I don't know, what is it? Most confident, most optimistic, something this summer. Most surgically enhanced. The pressure is on. Let's just jump in. Where do you want to begin this week? Don't ask me all the hard questions. And we've got a story this week, a new hot trend, which the headline is the new Brazilian butt lift. It used to be a few years ago, what everyone was sort of getting their derriere tucked into shape. And what are people doing now? They're looking at the front of their bodies and thinking, you know what? I want perfect abs, right? This is such a weird story. Like, sure, who doesn't want perfect abs? Actually, I don't want perfect abs. I think it looks weird. But apparently it's a whole thing. And there's now a surgery that you can get to replicate the look of six-pack abs without doing a single crunch. Uh, This is a trend that first started down in Brazil, where all surgical revolutions seem to start. And it is known as a procedure that for bodybuilder abs, which is going mainstream among Instagram influencers and even soccer moms and everyone in between. And this week, Tatiana Boncompagni looks at its sort of lightning spread inside the U.S. in the last few years. She says there's been a 66% increase since 2020 in the number of liposuction procedures performed in the U.S. alone. These are known as abdominoplasties or tummy tucks. Okay. I find this interesting because like one of the, to me, one of the best benefits of the pandemic is that I no longer had to show myself above the waist to really anyone. So why do you think this is happening? Is it because people ate too much during the pandemic and they just wanted an easy way to get it off? Like after reading Linda Evangelista's cover story in People magazine about the horrors of cool sculpting, I have no interest in doing any of these surgical fat removal procedures. It's a mystery to me, but apparently, as her reporting tells us this week, more people, I guess, they're not doing breast implants, they're not doing the butt lift. This is about seeing, just looking good on the beach and people want to see, quote, an oblique in their life and seeing some contour. So, Sporty abs are the next social acquisition that people are striving for. Wonderful. One more thing to feel insecure about. Thank you for the story, Tatiana. All right, we're going to move on. All right, I guess we should talk about Linda Wells' column because Linda is our intrepid beauty columnist. She was the founding editor of Allure magazine where she worked for over 25 years at the vanguard of all things beauty. And she started working on a story about body hair and she was surprised 
about where her reporting took her. She was originally going to call the piece, prepare yours, dear listeners, the Bush is back. But it turns out that the Bush is back and the Bush is not back. Turns out that body hair is now more of an aesthetic choice than a self-grooming mechanism, right? Which I thought was really interesting. It's like, you style your hair a certain way, you style your body hair a certain way. Like, you can tease it, you can oil it, you can dye it. There are all sorts of things you can do with your body hair, apparently. I never knew. You know what I've noticed among the youngs as I walk down New York City on these spring days and people are sort of taking off their coats and it's that first rush of warm air and everyone wants to expose their skin again. Have you noticed that there is a trend towards underarm hair among the youngs on the female side again. I have noticed this again. It's like an aesthetic decision. People are factoring it in as another part of their overall look. I'm underarm curious. You might catch me on the beach just seeing a whole new side of me. And it's exciting. It's thrilling. It's a way of breaking out of my comfort zone without becoming a swinger. So why not give it a go? What is up with this episode, Michael? I'm worried about us. I don't know. All right. We're going to have plenty to work with. I mean... Everyone's been talking about this all week, but I'm kind of bummed about the dissolution of CNN+. Plus. How could you be bummed? It was like there were three people watching that channel. I was one of the three. Well, look, I think it's been a week of media headlines between Zaslav shutting down CNN+, Plus after about six weeks, Netflix basically realizing that it's everything it's been doing for the last three years of the pandemic and throwing money and gobbling up as much content as good has proven to be not the path that Wall Street wants it on. So there's that great earthquake. And then you've got Elon Musk coming along and dropping $44 billion for Twitter. So lots of seismic tectonic plates shifting in the media world this week. You know, I sort of wonder, how hard was it really for Elon Musk to get together all the financing to buy Twitter? Was it like... As hard or more hard or less hard than it would be for like you and I to buy an apartment. My guess is it was probably easier. Like Morgan Stanley was like, here, take the money. I would imagine like having just come through finishing We Crashed, the Apple Plus show about the rise and spectacular flame out of WeWork. And you watch how Jamie Dimon and all these guys throw money at an idea because they're so eager to get in on something. $44 billion, very little. I don't know how much of it is even his own money, but sure, they're just going to throw it at him. Did you come around to We Crashed at the end? I was disappointed by the last episode. I felt it was kind of like, eh, but there were some terrific moments. And I think you'll see my prediction, of course, is that by the time Emmys come around later this year, both Jared and Anne Hathaway will be up for nominations because talk about just disappearing into roles pretty great. My friends and I have all been talking about the fact that like, why do we not know the Newmans? They live in the West Village. They have six kids. Like, surely we would, we would have seen them like traipsing through the streets with their large brood, right? Like... Someone told me they were hiding out in Amagansett. The Newmans? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you have six kids, like you're a known quantity, right? Like we would know you from the playground. Michael and I creepily hang out at playgrounds. No, but... I don't. I do. I hang out at West Village playgrounds all the time. I can't believe we haven't seen these people. So if you know the, if you know the Newmans, set us up because like Michael and I want to be friends. Well, there's been some big news out of France in the past week. We have Emmanuel Macron reelected for a second term. He's the first French president in about 20 years to be uh, reelected for a second term in the presidency. And we have Laura Heim here, a journalist and the former spokesperson for President Macron, to talk all about it. So welcome, Laura. Bonjour. How are you? Lovely to see you. First of all, all right, let's talk percentages. Macron ended up with what, what exact, was it 58% of the vote? Tell us a little bit of what the numbers looked like and what they mean. So it was a huge victory. However, and that's the bad news for him, 
it's not a huge victory because you have, okay, 58.5 for Macron, but you have more than 41% who for the first time voted for Marine Le Pen. And then in addition of that, you have 28% of the French people who decided not to go to vote. They decided not to vote for Emmanuel Macron, not to vote for Marine Le Pen. So when basically you have 41.5, let's say 42 plus 28, you have almost 60% of the French who refuse to vote for Macron. And then you have also the people who want to vote in the name of democracy, but they decided, you know, to throw in the paper and to say, we don't want Macron, we don't want Le Pen. It's called void voters. And basically those people are 6% to 7%. So you almost have 66% of the registered voters who didn't vote for Emmanuel Macron. Meanwhile at home, we've seen this Saccage Paris movement only grow in strength. Tell us a little bit about what Saccage Paris is and how Macron is contending with that issue. It's funny you're asking me the question about Saccage Paris. So I know in the United States, everyone is saying all the time, oh my God, I love so much Paris. I want to go to Paris. It's the most beautiful city in the world. Oh my God, look at that. I'm telling you, this is a very, very different city at this moment. It's ugly. There are a lot of constructions. You have a lot of traffic, you have a lot of people extremely nervous, complaining all the time. And it's very dirty. Why? Because the socialist mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, decided suddenly when she has been elected to do a lot of things at the same time. Paris is a very old city. It has been built many, many years, even centuries ago. And when you're doing something in Paris, basically, you're blocking the traffic. And she decided to do a lot of work, renovations needed, of course, in Paris, but at the same time. So the city is completely paralyzed. Uh, people are really, really annoyed about that. And on the other hand, to answer the ecological, the green movement request, she decided not to spend money on plants in Paris. And she decided not to clean around the trees. And she decided oh, it's better to have, you know, the nature taking over. So now in many parts of Paris, you have, yes, the nature taking over green light and red light. You have the feeling that you're in the jungle. You have a lot of wild plants all over. It's completely dirty because she cut off a lot of the municipal budget to clean up the city. And she was elected mayor of Paris, but at the presidential election, she made less than 3% by being the official candidate of the Socialist Party. And it's the direct result of this movement, which is called Saccage Paris, which means it's an ugly city at this moment when it's supposed to still be the most beautiful city in the world. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your insight into this. We have a lot more to talk about. We've got six weeks till these parliamentary elections, Laura, so we'll be speaking to you again. Exactly. Six weeks and... uh in a very divided country with basically the disappearance of uh, the classical parties, uh, Emmanuel Macron on one side, the far right on the other side, the far left on the other, other side. So maybe France is going to say something to the world. On va voir. Okay, à très très bientôt. Au revoir. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, well, moving on to other topics. It turns out, Michael, the suspicions were true 
According to Cassie David, Gen Z really is the worst. Yeah, explain this because I found this story that she's got in this week's issue about a company called Shine. Pretty amazing. Well, we had heard about this company called Shine, and it's a Chinese purveyor of fast fashion. These guys make cheap clothes and lots of them, and they've been incredibly popular and successful. Is there an aesthetic? Not really. It's just a bunch of junk that they sort of throw out into the universe and hope that people buy. And apparently Gen Z is all over this stuff. And in the face of cheap fashion, all of their values seem to fly out of the window. Are they made of very low quality non-recyclable fabrics derived from fossil fuels? Probably. But they look good and they're cheap and therefore Gen Z is very quick to abandon its ideals in the name of fashion. As Cassie you know, Gen Z was the one that was going to save us, especially in regards to they grew up so galvanized by climate change and ambitions of making a difference with the planet. And as Cassie notes, part of that was always going to be about sustainability, sustainability, make the right choices, don't buy fast fashion. And here they are, they become the sort of main customers of Shine, which Cassie describes as it's like the Netflix of online shopping. There are endless low-quality options, around 600,000 of them with absolutely zero aesthetic cohesion, all that made fast, cheap, and it's clothes that many people sort of buy once and dump it. You know, I got to need a new outfit for Coachella. I'm going to buy something and then throw it away and just becomes landfill. So she says, what's most frustrating about the Gen Z is that they gave up before they even started. They have these ADHD brains, as she says, molded by iPad games from before the time they could talk. And they seem to be incapable of focusing on the task at hand long enough to realize how much destruction their consumerism is causing. Dun, dun, dun. Michael. Yes, Ashley. What are you wearing? Well, I'm just wearing jeans and no shirt so I can sit here and just check out my obliques, my new surgically enhanced abs. Kidding. I'm just wearing a blanket over my head, much like you are, in order to get the best broadcasting sound in my voice. How about you? Well, I'm sorry to inform you, Michael, that you have not been anointed to the 2021-22 International Best Dress List. Sorry. Damn it. Come on, man. Keep on working, baby. Maybe one day you'll have your moment. The list is here at long last. Our illustrious colleagues, Amy Fine Collins, Amy Bell, Ronaldo Herrera, and Graydon Carter have at last announced the list of best dressed individuals for 2021 and 22. And it is one rather stylish lot. Sadly, no one we know personally is on it, but we hope that will change. I thought you personally knew Lady Gaga. I want to personally know Lady Gaga. Call me. So this year they elevated her to like God, right? She's a Hall of Famer now. Like she, that's just where she's at. And I think frankly, like given all the great outfits and Tiffany and Co. jewels that she was wearing all over award season, she absolutely deserves it. Yeah, all her, I mean, she's got a direct line into Shopparelli, which is really helping her kill it. So That Arizona sky. I was listening to the Star is Born soundtrack this morning. Yes, I was. I love that movie. I love that movie, too. I'm not even ashamed of how much I love it. I think it's just so good. I watch it like five times. Cry every time. Oh, me too. I watch it on planes, and I cry like a baby on the plane. It's so good. Okay, wait. Let's talk about who else is on the list. So you've got Squid Games, Jung Ho Yeon, right? Anya Taylor-Joy from Queen's Gambit, right? Zendaya. These are the rising stars in their 20s. All good. Also, for the first time ever in the history of 
the list, there's a father and daughter at the same time. Yep. The 12-time Grammy winner Luis Miguel graces the list. He is a new initiate at age 51. And his daughter, Michelle Salas, the 32-year-old influencer, has also graced it as well. She has been named a fashion professional, which is very exciting. We also have Chris Rock joining the list this year. I wonder if that had anything to do with his gracious behavior in the face of chaos at the Oscars. What do you think? I would think so, because I think as Amy notes in her story and introduction to the list. Carolina Herrera once observed years ago that, quote, best dressed is also about how you move, think, and live in your clothes, ideally with a sense of humor. So that would certainly qualify Chris Rock after the night at the Academy Awards. All right. Well, Michael, once you get your fake abs and once I get my body hair game going, maybe next year there's a chance for you and I to make it. What do you think? A boy can always dream. Amy Fine Collins is like, never in a million years. Nice try, guys. All right, well, whatever. We can dream. Okay, Michael, I think we need a guest at this point. Michael, you know that everybody loves a super couple, whether it's Brangelina or Pete and Kim. I know, I know, we're just delving into pop culture here. But we have Mark Rozo here to talk about one of the original super couples. Now, these are the uh, these are the people that we should aspire to be. Dennis Hopper and Brooke Hayward. And Mark is the author of a new book called Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s Los Angeles. And he's a wonderful writer, a musician, an editor, a filmmaker, even a professor of nonfiction writing, a longtime contributing editor at Vanity Fair and a documentary filmmaker. We are thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Okay, so Mark, you know, Dennis Hopper, we know the name. Brooke Hayward, maybe less familiar to some. Who were these people and why were they important in the 60s? Take us back to that time. Yeah, well, of course, we know Dennis Hopper from Easy Rider, later Blue Velvet, and going back to the very beginnings, Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. He was a guy who became a teenage movie star uh, in the 50s and became quite famous as a Hollywood maverick, maybe the ultimate Hollywood maverick. He died in 2010 at the age of 74. Brooke Hayward is still with us. Brooke Hayward is the daughter of Margaret Sullivan, the Oscar-winning actress, and Leland Hayward, who was, I guess you could say, the original super agent in Hollywood. So she was a Hollywood royal. He was a Hollywood maverick. They came together in 1961. Brooke described them as oil and water. Uh, They married hastily, ill-advisedly, perhaps. But their relationship was uniquely collaborative, hugely creative, never a dull moment. It was turbulent. It ended in not the best way around the time that Dennis was making Easy Rider, which was the project that made his career kind of saved his life, but unfortunately blew this fabulous union apart. And in the 60s in Los Angeles, they were the couple that just seemed to be at the heart of everything. They knew everybody. They connected everything. They seemed to be everywhere. Uh, In the book, I compare them to a super couple that maybe not everyone remembers now, but Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who were the it couple, the, the expat couple of 1920s France, the couple that inspired Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night. Dennis and Brooks served a similar purpose in L.A. in the 60s as uh, the Murphys did in France in the 20s, L.A. in the 60s being, of course, a much more 
turbulent place in time, let's say, a little bit darker. The book is a terrific cultural history as well as a biography of the, these couple, this couple. And, you know, you, what you do so well is you paint this picture of, as you sort of like, you know, Brooke has this East Coast waspy sensibility. Dennis, the kid from Kansas who comes and becomes a star opposite James Dean and, and, and come along and, and, and their home as you detail so well in the book at seventeen at seventeen twelve North Crescent Heights in the Hollywood Hills becomes kind of as you say this Prado of pop right and it becomes you know this crossroads is this intersection for West Coast kind of you know as all that's exploding there and then this East Coast arts and in, in, in can you take us through what that house was and how it became this kind of you know center of gravity for for Los Angeles back then? Yeah, I mean I love the phrase Prado of Pop. You know, I think I describe it in the book as the de facto living room of 60s LA. I can tell you a little bit about the house. It was up in the Hollywood Hills above Sunset. It was one of those 1920s Spanish colonials that you see all over LA. I mean, it was and Dennis and Brooke bought this house in early 1963, it did seem like everybody passed through those doors over the next um, several years. I mean, first of all, I should say about the house is that what made it interesting is that they had an incredible art collection, one of the greatest private collections of the era. The walls of the place were hung with Warhols and Ruchets and Lichtensteins and Stellas and Rosenquists. There was even a Marcel Duchamp. Dennis kind of led the charge in that, although a lot of that collection you know, was made doable by Brooks checkbook, as modest as it was at that time. I mean, I'm talking about when you could buy a Warhol for 75 bucks, right? Or a giant Rocher for under $800. Uh, those were the days, later. Mark. Those were the days. I missed them. And then Brooke uh, had this thing for crazy antiques, all this stuff that was so unfashionable at the moment of the early 60s, old Art Nouveau stuff, crazy old Americana, a lot of just kind of cast off junk, you know, and and the way they put it together was totally unique at the time. You know, it was kind of camp before camp was barely a thing. And so everybody who would walk into this place, which is, you know, their jaws would drop because in a way that house was more avant-garde in the early 60s than any art gallery or museum in the entire world. Michael Nesmith, who's not with us anymore, but who, you know, was in the in or on the monkeys, depending on how you look at it. You know, when I asked him about the house, said something. I asked him something like, "Oh, do you have any memories of that house?" And he said, "Memories? It's like a tattoo. It's totally burned on my mind. I walked into that place and I could not believe where I was and what I was seeing. I could barely understand what it was." And then out popped Dennis Hopper from around the corner, saying, "Hey, man!" You know, in that Dennis way, it became this kind of crazy cultural crossroads in LA in the 60s where, you know, they had old Hollywood, they had new Hollywood, Ferris Gallery artists, the Warhol crew, Ike and Tina Turner, Miles Davis, Joan Didion, Terry Southern, Buck Henry, the occasional Black Panther. And even at one time, you know, there was a Hell's Angels uh, <laughs> sleepover, you know, about 20 bikers in sleeping bags in the living room where they just pulled you know, they just pushed back the couch and they all sacked out there. Mark, um, as you were working on this biography, you didn't really have a lot of diaries or correspondence to draw from, but you did have Hopper's photographs. Tell us a little bit about what, um, you know, what the scope of that material was like and how you dug through it. Oh, man, the scope is really vast. There are about 18,000 images that survive 
of the pictures that Dennis took in the 60s when honestly, you know, his acting career wasn't in the best shape. And so most of his energy was going into collecting art and the photography. You know, he and Brooke really bonded over their mutual love for everything visual. And so that became their focus as a couple. And that's what plugged them in to the Warhol crowd and Ferris and gave um, Dennis that impetus as a photographer. And um, decades later, I feel like Dennis is finally being recognized for being an important photographer and a great documenter of his era, not just being a celebrity uh, Shutterbug, who had access to everybody. I mean, he really used his legwork to 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 um, to get around, and so um, his contact sheets became, as you say, I mean, it's the closest thing I ha had to like a diary. Dennis's contact sheets gave me a day-to-day -day sense of what life was like at seventeen twelve North Crescent Heights, both the fabulous people coming through and the family, the kids. Um, the relationship between Dennis and Brooke. Mark, you allude to their combustible, intense relationship. What ultimately precipitated its demise? Oh, it's a good question. And I, uh, uh, and I think in the airmail piece, I talk about the mystery surrounding a marriage, and I felt like I needed to to approach all that with a bit of, of tact and respect and appreciation of the unknowable. I think their personalities, in the end, proved to be incompatible. I think they were young um, they're two artists basically living um, in the same house. Dennis certainly had his career frustrations, which I outline in the book. I mean, there's great ecstasy and joy that he found in being a photographer, in his association with the artists, in collecting the art, in wanting to be an artist himself. But that was a very frustrating way to be in Hollywood in the 1960s. We have to remember that Dennis was one of the very few people and probably the prime individual in Hollywood that was trying to push Hollywood to be more about art. You know, the manifestation of that was Easy Rider. The other thing, the major part, component of this is that Dennis uh, had a drinking problem that got the upper hand as the 60s went on. And he later in life issued many, many a mea culpa about his terrible behavior in the 60s and how he was not able to control that. And, um, you know, thankfully for him, he got clean in the mid 80s and survived. Otherwise, I don't think he would have. I don't think he thought he would have either. Uh, Dennis died in 2010, uh, but Brooke is still alive and living in Connecticut. She's 85 years old, or at least she was when you spoke with her. How did you find her? What's she like? And what was it like to relive this part of her history with her? What can you say about Brooke Hayward? I, mean, I feel like she really is a living legend. She's the bee's knees. Um, she can be a sphinx. She's an eternal mystery. She has this kind of movie star charisma that she can turn on and off. I guess I could say at at will that she has, and of course we should mention, um, you know, maybe as Ashley I think did, uh, you know, in in the late seventies she wrote Haywire, which is probably you know still considered the greatest memoir ever written about growing up in Hollywood. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to see you. And I'm sure we'll be back here again soon to talk about something else equally fascinating. I hope so. It's great to talk to you guys. Great to see you. The name of the book again, Mark, is? Everybody thought we were crazy. And you can buy it now. Yes, please do. Love that book from Mark, which reminds me, Ashley, the weekend is coming. Culturally, what can you recommend? Michael, did you read Shaggy Bane? I did, based on your recommendation. Love it. All right, so this is the debut novel of Douglas Stewart. It came out 
in 2020, and it actually won the Booker Prize that year, the British Book of the Year Award, the Sue Kaufman Prize, even a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, huge success. And it turns out Douglas Stewart is back with his follow-up, his sophomore effort. It is called Young Mungo. And I think it's just as extraordinary. It uh, took him five years to write it uh, while he was in between drafts of Shuggy Bane. And it's a, a really marvelous take on a working class life and a story of first love, really, between two young men, one of whom is Mungo and another one named James. Um, and Mungo is a Protestant and James is a Catholic. Um, it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet type of story. And they live in a world that's highly charged, it's highly polarized, it's highly tribal in some ways, uh, very male-oriented, male-dominated, and they're surrounded by gangs of uh, young men who are sort of fighting for their place in the world uh, in Glasgow. So this is a, Young Mungo is, is not necessarily a sequel to Shuggy, but it very much exists in that same universe. Um, and it's a really wonderful book. It just came out on April 5th, and it, it's already earning many accolades. So if you're looking for a novelist to delve into, that's a great one. Wonderful. And Michael, I know you're in Los Angeles, but I'm sure you found time to do something cultural. So tell us, what do you have? I do. A limited series, which just started on the Stars channel called Gaslit. Stars Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. And as we come up on the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, which went down in June of 72, this is a great way into that story. Penn plays John Mitchell, the corrupt attorney general to Richard Nixon, and Roberts takes on the role of his outspoken wife, Martha, who helped blow the whistle on the scandal and suffered terribly for it, thanks to the goons around Nixon. Roberts is awesome as the wife who doesn't play by the rules, and Penn truly disappears into his role thanks to the makeup transformation he does, courtesy of the guy who turned Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill when he won the Oscar in his film. Dan Stevens, who played Matthew Crawley in Downton Abbey, plays John Dean here, and he's great as well, along with Betty Gilpin, who is Maureen Dean. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the show goes. It's Gaslit, and it's on. It's streaming now on Stars. Thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend full of reading and writing, and perhaps no some arithmetic. Who knows? Uh, Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vidali. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you for joining us. <laughs>